been to a lot of functions where you've had to put like a name tag on. And, you know, we always say like, hi, my name is, and then, you know, Mitch. And then sometimes people will kind of spice it up and say, uh, also put on that, you know, I don't know, your job or like something interesting you did last summer or, you know, whatever it is. So it might be at a, you might be at a high school reunion and you might have, you know, name, Mitch, uh, pastor is what I do, um, or you probably won't put that, you know, but whatever your name is and whatever it is you do, you have it on there. And then maybe you'd ask the person, okay, you're a plumber, you're a, um, you're doing this or that, whatever it is, and you might say, well, is that, you know, what you wanted to do when you graduated high school? Like, is that what you were planning to do? Is that, like, where you were, you know, kind of the job of your dreams? Like, is that what you always wanted to get into? Because I don't know if you, you probably had uh, those, like, tests that you take in high school where it's, like, you fill it all out and it tells you what you um, might want to be or what you would fit at. I don't actually remember mine. I wonder if it said pastor. Who knows? But um, maybe it's like, okay, you took that thing. You told us all in you know, junior year, like, this is what the test told you to do. But then you ended up doing this. Like, do you like that? How did that happen? And today, kind of that idea of having a name tag on, we're beginning a sermon series in the letter uh, that we call First Peter. It's called First Peter because it's First and Second Peter. And the name of this series is uh, different, just one word, different. Um, because that's kind of the core message, um, maybe not... Uh, it's the core thing that Peter's dealing with, is that the people that he is writing to have become Christians. He's writing about 30 years after Jesus' death. And these people have become Christians somewhere along the way, and that made them different. They now had different beliefs, a different hope, different practices that they're doing throughout their life. And because they were different, people in their community noticed and were harassing them and were sometimes hostile towards them of like, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? Why aren't you hanging out with us anymore? Why are you believing that? That's going to, you know, those beliefs are going to ruin our society and our town. And so they're struggling because they are different. And then Peter instructs them, and remember, this is why you're different. It's because of what God has done in your life. And also, this is how you respond uh, in a different way than is normal to these people and how they're treating you. Like, you are different, and that also goes for your response. And this is... Uh, connecting with our theme that we talked about. Uh, we did two series, sermon series on already of that. This year we want to uh, be learning how to invite to surrender, our mission statement, surrendering all of life to Jesus and inviting others to do the same. And we're focusing this year on our growth theme of inviting others to do the same. And so we talked about you know, what does that look like to be inviting people. Then we talked about loving our neighbors. And I was wanted to just kind of continue it, but going through a book of the Bible, First Peter is a great one where it's, okay, he's writing these people living in a society and culture that doesn't hold their beliefs, how in the world are they supposed to interact with this culture and this country? And this letter was written, as I said, in the 60s uh, of the first century to a group of churches located in modern-day Turkey, uh, by, and it's written by one of Jesus' earliest followers, the Peter, or he's sometimes called Simon. And in the very first sentence, Peter begins by identifying himself. This is kind of his... Uh, if he was at the high school reunion, this is his little name tag. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's how he starts it. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Then we might ask, uh, okay, well, how did you get there, Peter? What, what, is that, what does that mean? How did you become an apostle of Jesus Christ? What's the story about that? You know, imagine we're at this high school reunion with him. And it's like, what, Peter, what, how did that come about? And Jesus died around 30 A.D., and now, 30 years later, Peter is still identifying himself, I am Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And the word apostle simply means sent one. So he's saying, I am someone who's been sent by 
Jesus Christ. I've been sent by Jesus. So you might ask, your boss died 30 years ago. Why are you still working for him? You know, you're kind of living in the past, man. <laughs> and Peter also uses the title Christ for Jesus. And Christ is the Greek word that means anointed one, which is equivalent to the Hebrew word in the Old Testament, um, Messiah, Meshiach. That was the Hebrew word. They both mean anointed one. And the Messiah, or the Christ, was the one the people of Israel were waiting for. God uh, had a, there's lots of people he anointed in the Old Testament. You might remember him anointing Samuel, anointing uh, um, David, anointing them with oil, saying, you're set apart for me. Um, uh, and, but then that continues until people say, you know what, God's going to anoint someone who's going to be his servant. He, God anoints his servants. I'm, he's going to anoint his servant who's going to come and do everything that we've been hoping for. All the things the prophets are talking about. It's kind of going to be this like ultimate anointed one, this ultimate Messiah, this ultimate Christ. And he's going to come... And what they expected was he would deliver Israel from whoever was oppressing them, oppressing them at the time, and he would restore the kingdom of God in the land. But the issue is Jesus, people thought he was the Messiah, they called him the Christ. He died uh, 30 years ago when Peter's writing this letter. And so why is Peter still calling him the Messiah? Why is he still working for him? The, the Messiah died. How can you be the apostle of Jesus the Messiah if he died, he did, and the Romans are still here. What, Peter, what are you talking about? And there's uh, external and internal evidence that the source um, for the gospel, according to Mark, we have four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the source material um, it, for the gospel, according to Mark, is said to be Peter himself, that John Mark was uh, kind of Peter's assistant or following him around, so you heard Peter talking about Jesus, you know, going around, like Jesus said, you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to go to the ends of the earth. And so as Jesus is going around, he's saying this is what, or as Peter's going around, he's saying this is what Jesus is like. This is what he did. And so there's uh, external evidence that points to Mark, or Peter as the source um, for what Mark wrote, and internal evidence. And in Mark's account, one of the internal things is that Mark's account is especially detailed and vivid when recounting events that involved Peter. And so, oh, Peter's involved here. Peter had a lot of details about that. And so Mark has more details than Matthew or Luke or John. And then it, it also leaves out praiseworthy or noticeable references to Peter that are recorded in Matthew and Luke. So Peter doesn't, you know, toot his own horn like, ah, you know, this whole thing is just all of Peter's adventures. No. And so as we consider Peter's story, uh, how did this happen? You know, hi, I'm Peter. I, I'm Apostle of Jesus Christ. How did this happen? We're going to look at the Gospel according to Mark, kind of these um, key uh, moments in it, because this is, this is how Peter was telling the story, and it was recorded down uh, by Mark. And so, imagine as we go into the story that this is happening to you. These events happened in your life. And so the first event we're going to look at is uh, it's on page 836, if you're using the Black Bibles here, but it's Mark 1, 16 through 20. And Heather read this for us, Mark Chapter 1, 16 through 20, page 836. And the key words here is that Jesus uh, says the words, Follow me to Peter and to his associates. Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And Peter's brother is actually who, Andrew is who introduced him to Jesus. We learn that in John chapter 1. Um, but he's sitting here, he's a fisherman, and Jesus comes up, Hey, you're a fisherman now, but I'm going to make you a fisher of men. Come and follow me. And then we saw the events quickly. He goes to the synagogue, and he's in, he's in the town of Capernaum, which is Peter's hometown. He goes to the synagogue. He casts out this demon, and then eventually ends up at 
the house of both Peter and Andrew in Mark 1, 29-31, and he heals Peter's mother-in-law. And so uh, Jesus, or Peter's getting this up-close uh, and personal uh, experience with Jesus. First calls him to follow him, then he sees him cast out a demon, then he's uh, hanging out in his mother-in-law's house and um, casts a fever out of her, and she's healed. And then at sundown, all these people are bringing the, he- the, the sick and the demon possessed to Jesus, and he's healing him. Um, but then he goes off by himself, and Peter comes and follows him and says, all these people are looking for you. There's healing that needs to be done down there. And he's like, no, I need to go to the next town because that's uh, where I need to be. And then we, later on in Mark's Gospel, page 838, chapter 3, 13 through 21, Jesus goes off alone. He prays all night. And then he calls to, we're told he calls to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And this ends up being the 12 apostles. They're all named off in, in uh, Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through uh, 20, 21. Names them all off. And he tells them, this is what I want you to do. My 12 apostles, um, I want you to be with me, and I'm going to send you to preach, to have authority to cast out demons and to cure diseases. And so he calls them what he wants them. I want you to be with me. These 12 guys, he says, you're going to be with me. You're going to be close to me. You're like this inner circle. But even within that, there was a even more inner circle in three of these apostles, James, John, and Peter. And there was things that they were allowed to experience that other people didn't get to experience. For instance, in Mark 5.37, uh, when Jesus heals a man's daughter, the only people who lets come in there are Peter, James, and John. And when Jesus is, uh, it's called the transfiguration, in Mark 9.2, Jesus' uh, clothes are turned white and there's this cloud that comes over this mountain that they're standing on, and they hear the voice of God. And there's only three disciples that Jesus brought up that mountain, Peter, James, and John. And so there's kind of this inner circle of 12, but then there's an inner inner circle of these three that just experience more. They're given access to Jesus that others didn't have. And so we see Jesus says, follow me, and then he appoints Peter as one of his apostles that he's going to give this authority to. But then later on, something... Uh, even more significant happens in Mark 8, 27 through 30, which is on page 844. Jesus asks his disciples, okay, who are the people saying that I am? And they say, well, some people say uh, one of the prophets you know, from the old days, or some people say John the Baptist. And Jesus is like, okay, um, well, who do you say I am? That's what the people are saying about me. Who do you say I am? And then Peter speaks up and says, you are the Christ. And so whether however long he had took him to come to that point, how long he listened to being with Jesus and hanging out with him and learning from him, Peter clearly sees this is the Messiah. This is the Christ. This is the one we've been waiting for. Our Old Testament scriptures, we've been waiting and waiting and waiting for centuries. And now he's saying, here it is. I mean, imagine that. The, the amount of time that Israel was waiting for the Messiah is a longer amount of time than our country has been in existence. You know, so this is like centuries and centuries that there's this promise that they're holding on to and saying this Messiah is going to come. He's going to make everything right. He's going to lead the nation back to God. He's going to restore God's kingdom on earth. We're not going to have these foreign powers ruling over us, but this guy is going to come and do this. And so Peter confesses, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for. But then quickly, uh, an even more uh, maybe surprising thing gets said is that Jesus says to him, uh, get behind me, Satan. Not right after this, but Jesus, immediately after uh, Peter says, you are the Messiah, he starts saying, okay, 
this is what it looks like for me to be the Messiah. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be, you know, hurt at the hands of the religious leaders. And then I'm going to die. And three days later, I'm going to rise again. And so Peter says, uh, hey, hey, Jesus, just so you know, that's not the script for what the Messiah is supposed to do. Like, you're supposed to come. You're supposed to be victorious. You're not going to die at the hands of our leaders or at the hands of the, the Gentiles, which are just non-Jewish people, which would be referring to the Romans. Like, you're not going to die at the hand of the Romans. You're going to beat the Romans. You're not going to suffer them. You know, sure, maybe there's some suffering. It's going to be a war because we're going to kick these people out of our country. But you're not going to die. You can't be the Messiah if that happens. And so Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. And what Peter thought it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah is different than what it actually meant for Jesus to be the Messiah. And I, there's this little summary that I found in a book that I was reading, and I just found it helpful. So I'll read this to you. To be a first century Jew in Palestine was to live with an unavoidable consciousness of living in an occupied country. Jews typically viewed their Roman invaders with some combination of smoldering resentment and hatred. They longed to be free of their oppression. For generations, they had waited for the arrival of a Messiah who would deliver them from their enemies and lead them into a glorious future. For those in whom this hope had not yet died, the present seemed to be the perfect time for such deliverance. And so that's describing what it was like to be Peter. Our country is occupied by a foreign nation. And I'm just hoping the Messiah will come back. You're praying for it, hoping for it, and wishing it would happen. And then all of a sudden he's saying, I think it's going to happen now. This is going to happen in my day. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 says that the message of Christ crucified, the Messiah being crucified, is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Meaning that when Jews hear that, they think, that doesn't make any sense. The Messiah crucified they stumble over it. And to the non-Jewish world, it's like, what are you talking about? That's just foolish. You're worshiping and following a dead guy. That's foolishness. And Peter is the first Jew to stumble over Christ crucified. He says, Jesus, you are the Christ. And he says, I'm going to suffer and die. And Peter says, no, no, that's not how it's going to go. And keep in mind, the, the story from Mark 8 is Peter's own testimony recorded by Mark. And so Peter didn't shy away from telling this story. How did Mark find out? He heard the story from Peter. And in the Bible, we often see that the heroes of Scripture are very mixed people. Yes, they have moments of great faith and great obedience, but they also have moments of complete failure. And Peter's story highlights for us the grace of God that he chooses to use flawed, imperfect, sinful, doubting, unfaithful people. And remember, Jesus spent all night praying, who should be my 12 apostles? Oh, Peter's one of them. And you think at this moment, he's like, maybe I, maybe I got that wrong, God, when I, was, when I was praying. But no, Jesus chose Peter and all of these guys. He chose Judas, too, to betray him. And then in Mark 14, we talked about triumphal entry. Mark 11, Jesus, finally, after three years of ministry, they're coming to Jerusalem, and people are thinking, this is it. This is when the showdown is going to happen. He's going to come into the capital. He's going to rally people. He's going to boot these Romans out. We're going to have our capital city back. And then it's just going to start from there. Messiah is going to lead us to get the Romans out of our country. And so there's this triumphal entry. And it's, you, know, you can imagine for Peter going in, people laying down their palm branches, saying, Hosanna in the highest. You know, Blessed are you who comes in the name of the Lord. As he's entering Jerusalem, and Peter is following Jesus, he must be like, this is really happening. Like, this, is, this is going to happen. This is great. But then, 
Jesus says on Thursday night, you know, so in a couple of days, while they're sitting around having the Passover meal together, Jesus' last meal, he says to Peter, you will deny me three times. Mark 14, 26 to 31. You will deny me three times. P- Jesus says, you're all going to fall away. And Jesus, Peter's like, no, I'm, not, I'm never going to fall away. And he's like, you actually will deny me three times that you even know me. And it's interesting that if we look back at Mark 8, where Peter, Jesus was saying, if you want to come after me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And then he goes on and says, if you're ashamed of me before people, I'm going to be ashamed of you before my father. And, that's ex- and so Peter says, I'm not going to ever be ashamed of you. I'm never going to deny you. I'm never going to deny knowing you. That's not going to happen. And then from that supper on Thursday night, in the, during the night, they moved to what's called the Garden of Gethsemane, which is this grove of olive trees, and Jesus is praying there, Father, I'm seeing what's coming. It, would you, if there's another way, could you let this cup pass from me? Yet not what I will, but what you will. And then Judas comes, bringing a crowd. They arrest Jesus, and then he's questioned before the high priest. And then he, and during this time, while in the night, while he's getting questioned by the religious leaders, that's when people keep saying to Peter, wait, aren't you one of his followers? And he's like, no, 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 I don't know the guy. Wait, aren't you from Galilee? I can tell from your accent. No, 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 I, I don't know him at all. Peter denies him three times. He does what he swore he wouldn't do. I will not deny you. I won't be ashamed of you. And then he does it. But the, the story doesn't end there because Jesus dies on the cross uh, and then he's buried and then he's resurrected. And the resurrection is so important because it's pretty easy to predict your death. I mean, if you're predicting it down to the day and how it happens, um, that would be a different thing. Unless you're like, you know, on April 21st, I'm going to go jump off a cliff and I'm predicting it today. April 21st, I'm going to die by jumping off a cliff. But Jesus not only predicted his own death, I'm going to die, but I'm also going to rise again. And you would think, okay, yeah, I don't know about that last part. Sure, we're all going to die. But the, him rising again, being resurrected from the dead, is what tells us he really was who he said he was. And that his death really did what he said he would do. He said, I'm going to give my life as a ransom for many. And I could tell you that now. I could say, I'm going to die tomorrow for all of your sins. You're going to be covered. And you'd be like, that's crazy. But I'm three days and be resurrected, and then all of a sudden you'd be like, maybe his death really did do what he said he would do. And we shouldn't believe Jesus if he wasn't resurrected, because what's this Jewish guy have to do with my sin, unless he really was the Son of God coming to take my punishment for me? And after Jesus is resurrected, he appears to his disciples. Um, this part isn't in Mark's Gospel. This is in John 21, 1-19, uh, where Jesus, actually, uh, Peter and John are told here from Mary Magdalene, Jesus is risen, he's not at the tomb. And then both of them go running there to check it out. These two guys, James, John, Peter, um, two of them, John and, John and Peter, part of that inner circle, run to the tomb. Like, really? Is it really empty? And they go and they see it. And later on, Peter's doing uh, what he did when P- Jesus first called him to follow him. He's fishing. And they aren't catching any fish. And Peter or Jesus yells out from shore, Try it on the other side! And then they do, and there's all this fish, and it comes back to Peter. That's what happened when he first told me to follow him. And then he says, it's the Lord! And he you know, gets his robes up, and then he jumps through the water, and he swims to shore. And he comes up, and Jesus has uh, made this fire. We're told it's a charcoal fire. And the last time charcoal fire was mentioned in the Gospel according to John 
was when Peter was outside the house of the high priest, Jesus getting questioned and put on trial. And Peter, it's cold, we're told, and he's warming himself by a charcoal fire. And somebody in the light sees his face and says, aren't you one of his followers? And then now, again, by a charcoal fire, Jesus is sitting there making breakfast, and he says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, of course I love you. Yes, I love you. And he says something, I can't remember the exact words, like, feed my sheep. And then he says again, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, I love you. Okay, take care of my sheep. And a third time he says, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, yes, you know everything, Lord. He's kind of getting agitated, like you keep asking me. He denied him three times. And then Jesus takes this opportunity, sit around the same fire, and say, do you love me three times? Gives him an opportunity to reaffirm his love. And once again, we're just shown how the grace of God uh, is demonstrated in Jesus. Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me before other people, I'm going to be ashamed of you before my Father. But Peter's unfaithfulness was paid for by Jesus' death on the cross. And so he can say, Peter, let's try this again. Do you love me? You've denied me three times. Tell me you love me three times. And after this whole experience, we saw in back in Mark 8 when Jesus says, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. That's what's going to happen. And Peter says, no way, that's not going to happen. And then at Jesus' trial, uh, Peter is thinking, I will do anything for this guy. But three people just ask him, do you know me? And he says, no, I don't know him. He denies him three times. So Peter, his plan for his life is, I'm not going to suffer. I'm not going to die. I'm not going to be rejected and mistreated and uh, experience this hostility for Jesus. But that all completely changes after Jesus is resurrected. So if we look at Acts 1.16, there's this meeting that in the book of Acts is the recording of the early church, starting from Jesus' uh, ascension back into heaven and going uh, several uh, years later. Um, but Jesus, well, I guess Acts 1 actually starts uh, yeah, right after Jesus' death and resurrection. And he ascends. Um, but So he ascends. Jesus is gone. He back, went back to the Father, saying, I will return again. And then Peter, and it says 120 other uh, disciples, followers of Jesus, they're sitting around in this room. Jesus said, wait here. I'm going to send my Holy Spirit. You're going to be witnesses for me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, but you need to wait here. So they're sitting around waiting. And then they say, well... Um, we need to replace Judas. There's supposed to be 12 of us who are official witnesses. And they give the criteria. It's somebody who's been with Jesus from his baptism by John all the way up until today. That's the qualifications. You had to witness all that. So like, we had to replace Judas. He was there, and he betrayed Jesus, and then he ran off and hung himself. So let's replace him. And what Peter says in 1.16 to these people that are gathered here, he says, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. The key words, the scripture had to be fulfilled. He has a new understanding of this whole thing. Before he said, no way, Jesus, you're not going to suffer and die. And now he's saying it had to be fulfilled, that he would be betrayed, that he would suffer and die. And then when he preaches the first sermon uh, of the early church, Acts, uh, well, it's bigger than this, we're going to look at three Three verses, Acts 2, 22 to 24. Uh, the Holy Spirit comes on the disciples and they start speaking in different languages and people are like, what is going on up there? Do they sound drunk? And then Peter says, 
no, we're not drunk. And he tell, gives us and gives us a sermon. And in part of it, he says in Acts two twenty two to twenty four, he says, "Men of Israel, hear these words: Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men." God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it is not possible for him to be held by it. So notice what he says. He, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So yes, Jesus was crucified and killed. But he also says it was the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He has a completely different scene. What Jesus went through, what this suffering and this death, this was part of God's plan for bringing us back to him. And then last, uh, what, one or two more passages in Acts. Acts 4.13. The, uh, Peter and some of the other apostles, they're taken um, before some of the religious leaders because they're saying, you need to stop uh, talking about this Jesus guy. And they beat him up and they charge him not to say anything. But then in Acts 4.13... After this happens, uh, they say this. Uh, the people that are looking at them say this. Uh, or sorry, Luke is describing in Acts what the people did. It says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they are uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So the religious leaders see in Peter and the other apostles, three things. Their boldness, that they're uneducated, common men, and they recognize that they had been with Jesus. Now, I'm sure most of you know that I spent uh, three years in seminary studying the Bible, studying theology, studying church history, uh, studying ministry, and from that you may conclude that God can use me more than he can use you. But actually, if we were to read the accounts of Jesus' life, it was people like me who had the most education, who had the most Bible knowledge, that they're most, they have the greatest tendency to be prideful, to think they're better than other people, to not rely on God because oh, we've got all this education, we know all this stuff. And they were the people who failed to see what God was doing through Jesus. They're the ones who rejected Jesus and brought him to be killed. And so Peter's boldness for Jesus came from one thing, the fact that he had been with Jesus, And that's what Jesus called them to, right? He prayed on the mountain, and he said, came down and he said, I chose 12 of you. And he said, I've cho- chosen you that you would be with me. And then now, all these years later, now these people are saying, these are uneducated common men. They have this boldness, and we know they were with Jesus. That was the thing. And each and every one of you can meet that requirement. No amount of education or training can replace uh, what comes of us when we commit ourselves to be with Jesus. And Peter probably never expected to have Apostle of Jesus Christ after his name. When he was in high school, people didn't vote him most likely Apostle of the Messiah. Uh, He probably didn't ever think he'd have that on his business card. And probably no one in Israel would have expected someone like Peter. Peter, a fisherman, he's a blue-collar worker. He's, you know, probably can't even read very well. Maybe he can, maybe he can't. But this guy, he's not going to be. It's going to be these people that know the Bible, that are giving all their lives to it, that are, that are studying and, and all the things that they're doing. But Peter is an unlikely person to be writing letters to churches 
to instruct them in how to remain faithful to the Messiah in the midst of suffering. Because he was the first one to say, you won't suffer, Jesus. And then he denied Jesus three times because he didn't want to suffer. So he's the most, one of the most unlikely people to write a letter like First Peter. In fact, he's an unlikely person to even be writing about a suffering Messiah. And yet here he is. He's been changed. changed. In the last little couple verses in Acts, Acts 5, 41 through 42, Peter and some of the other apostles are arrested by the religious council in, in Jerusalem. They're put in prison. Then an angel releases them from prison, and they just go back to what they're doing. They're standing in the temple courts uh, talking about Jesus to people. And then the, the religious council goes, okay, send for those guys. We're going to question them. And the guard comes back and says, they're not there. The doors are shut. The guards are there. But those guys you arrested aren't there. And somebody says, they're, they're back preaching in the temple courts. They're like, oh, bring them back in here. Let's talk to them again. And it says, they tell them, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And Peter responded, this is what he said. We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And the religious leaders were then enraged, and they think, we, we just need to kill these guys. But then one of the guys says, well, just wait a minute. Remember there was a guy that, you know, several years ago, and he kind of had this following, but then it all got stamped out because it wasn't of God. He says, we need to be careful. If this isn't of God, if this Jesus thing isn't of God, it'll dissipate, just like that did. But if it is of God, and you oppose it, you'll be found to be opposing God himself. And so they take the advice, but first they beat them. Uh, yeah, you're right, but let's beat them and then send them off. They beat them, send them out, and tell them, don't speak about Jesus again. And then what we're told in Acts 5.41, it says, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, the name of Jesus. And so Peter, who once avoided suffering, who once would not let his loyalty to Jesus bring him into a place of maybe being arrested like Jesus, maybe being beaten like Jesus, maybe being uh, put on trial like Jesus, maybe dying like Jesus. He said, no way am I going to do that, deny Jesus three times. But now he's here rejoicing, I was counted worthy to suffer for Jesus. And when Jesus said, follow me to Peter, I don't think Peter could have imagined what his life would become uh, by saying yes to that invitation. He's minding his own business, fishing with his business partners, hanging out on the boat, and the Messiah walked into his life and changed it forever. And during the course of those three years before Jesus' death, Peter discovered that the person he said yes to is much more than uh, the person he thought he was. Eventually he discovered, okay, he's the Messiah. He's Maybe at first he thought, okay, this is a rabbi calling me to follow him. That's kind of weird. I'm not the typical person. But eventually he's it's becoming clear, this guy's really the Messiah. Uh, and then eventually, he saw, You're just, he's much more than Messiah. He's actually the God that I've prayed to and believed in my whole life, come back to his people in the flesh to free us and rescue us from our slavery. All of a sudden, Jesus is way more than he thought he ever uh, imagined that he was. And he was his God taken out of flesh. And P Peter, just like everyone else, knew that the Messiah would be called the Son of God. That's in Psalm 2. It's in um, 2 uh, Samuel 
17. Uh, I'm getting that reference wrong. Uh, he, well, what he thought was, okay, the Messiah is going to be the Son of God. But what he thought that meant, just like everyone else, was, well, yeah, um, God's going to call him the Son of God because he's going to be God's representative. He's going to you know, be rule on God's behalf, rule the kingdom on God's behalf, just like a good son taking over the family business. He's going to run it like his father would. And Peter never could have imagined that the Messiah would literally be the Son of God, the one who is eternally with God and who was God, who, through whom everything was created. And over the 30 years from that day in the boat to the writing of this letter, First Peter, that we're going to be going through, Peter learned a lot. He became a completely different person. And by God's grace, uh, he became like Jesus. And Jesus is teaching an example. Go and read um, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. And then go and read First Peter, and you'll realize, wow, it's like all there, all the stuff that Jesus was saying. And the thing that Peter learned was first suffering, then glory. First suffering, then glory. And you'll find that in the Apostle Paul. You'll find that what Jesus was teaching, like first is going to be suffering. The Beatitudes, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you according to my name. Blessed are the mourners, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. These are people that the world is not all as it should be, and they aren't being treated as they would like to be treated. And yet Jesus says, you are blessed if you're mourning what this world is like, if you're hungering and thirsting for a righteousness that isn't here, and and if you're suffering according to my name. And so this is what Peter teaches in this letter. The path and pattern to glory is suffering. And I would say that this whole book, 1 Peter, this letter he's writing, is Peter applying what Jesus said to him that day when Peter said, you are the Christ, and Jesus says, I'm going to suffer and die. And then Peter says, that's not going to happen. And he says, get behind me, Satan. And he says, if you would come after me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And I would argue that this whole letter is Peter applying that basic definition of what it means to be a disciple. But while basic, that does not mean it's easy or shallow. It took Peter a long time to have the courage to live it out. And as long as we insist on living life on our own terms, Jesus says we'll be destroying our life. If you want to save your life, uh, you're going to destroy it. But if you'll lose your life for my sake, then you will find it. And Peter assumed it's going to cost us something to follow Jesus. And he learned that lesson from Jesus himself, and then he learned it uh, in experience. But Peter, at first, did not want to pay that cost. And in the end, he learned that what we gain by following Jesus is worth so much more than what could ever be taken from us or what we could ever lose. And there's two times in this letter, Peter, right at the beginning in verse 1, he calls them elect exiles. And in 2.11 in the letter, he says he calls them sojourners, and exiles. And the point he's making is you're an exile. You're a sojourner. You're a foreigner. You're a stranger. You do not, this is not the kingdom that Jesus has called you to. That is not here on earth yet. You're waiting for it. This saying, you're not at home, so don't expect to be at home. Don't expect that this world is going to, you're going to feel like you belong to it. Don't expect that you can just be comfortable and settle in and think, you know, everything's good. He's saying, this world is not your home. That doesn't mean God's going to send us off into a non-bodily, non-physical existence in heaven, but eventually heaven is, the kingdom of heaven is going to come to earth and they're going to be one. This whole thing is going to be transformed. But right now, this is not your home. This is the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of darkness. This is the kingdom of the world and it's going to fight against you. Your entire life, you maybe have lived where you live, but you no longer belong there. It's no longer your home. When you trusted in Jesus, your entire reality changed. You have a different king and you have 
You're in a different kingdom now. So we ask ourselves, how can we live for Jesus in a world that doesn't like him? How do you live for God's kingdom in a world that has rejected his rule? And we have to accept that we will be different. And we have to accept the cost that comes with that. You maybe can imagine it like you have a wallet. Uh, it's like, I don't know, the, your world's wallet. And in that wallet you have uh, things of this world, maybe respect, inclusion and belonging, promotions and, and whatever else. So imagine, you know, okay, I have people that respect me. That's something I have in my wallet. That's something that belongs to me. I have people that like me and include me in things. I have that. Um, I have up for this promotion so that I've kind of got this wallet of worldly things. And Jesus says if we want to follow him, we need to count the cost. Look in your wallet. Are you willing to pay all that out? Are you willing to lose, take the promotions out? Are you willing to take people's respect out? Are you willing to take belonging out of your wallet and say, I'm willing to pay the, that cost, Jesus, of following you? And many times we avoid paying the cost. We want to keep, follow Jesus and keep all those things in my wallet. People respect me. People like me. I, they feel like I belong, like I'm one of them. We want to keep it in our wallet. And so, you know, if I... If you imagine having a little name tag, hi, I'm Mitch. And then I believe, and writing all your beliefs down of what you believe in that name tag, are you willing to out yourself as a Bible-believing Jesus follower? You know, the Bible's true, hell is real, Jesus is good news. I mean, say those three things to people, and they, you, get some, you could lose a lot of respect. You could lose friends. Like, what are you talking about? Hell is real. You know, what are you talking about? The Bible is true. What would people do if they knew everything that you believe about God, about yourself, about them, about the world? You might have people saying, so you believe everyone who doesn't believe what you believe is wrong and will go to hell, will be punished forever? So you believe it's wrong to uh, be gay? So you believe Jesus was actually God and after that he died and rose from the dead? So you believe everything in this book is true and actually happened? You'll get people... Raising their eyebrows, you say, I believe all this is true. I believe we'll all have to respond to Jesus if we don't want to have, uh, live in eternal conscious torment. And if the people in your life knew what you believe, would they still be your friend? Would they still talk to you? And we have to ask ourselves, am I willing to pay that cost of outing myself as a Christian? And there's already ways in your life that you're different. You're here, <laughs> spending your Sunday morning here. Uh, you serve in some way. Uh, you, you read a Bible, you own a Bible, you pray. Uh, we have activities of the gospel community. And the question is, do we hide those things? Like, okay, those are the things I'm going to have with my Christian community, but I'm going to hide the fact that I open this ancient book and believe it has value for my life and that it is true. I'm going to hide the fact that I spend my mornings here or that I pray for people. And many times we try as hard as we can to not be different. We want to fit in want to belong. We don't want to stick out. We don't want to be seen as outsiders. We might try to be like uh, chameleons in a way, matching the color of our culture, what people expect from us. We don't want to be seen as foreigners, but that's exactly what we're called to be. You belong to a different kingdom, but you're living in a different kingdom now. You don't belong here. This isn't your kingdom. You're not a citizen of this place. You're a foreigner. And Jim Elliott I think I've shared this quote before, and you've perhaps heard it. He was a missionary who died, gave his life, um, trying to reach a certain people group. He said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose.
And throughout this letter, people will tell us and his other readers of what you've gained that you can't lose so that we would have what it takes to be faithful and to pay the cost of things that I can lose those things because I've gained something of way more value that I can't lose because God gives it to me. And whenever we're having a hard time remaining faithful to Jesus, the solution is not just do it. Nike isn't a very good uh, slogan for Christians. You need to do it, just do it. But the solution that Peter does is he says, look back to Jesus. See what God has done for you. See the hope that you have. See who, your identity in Christ. And see, this is what God has done for you. And then he says, and now remain faithful. Put your hope in that. Stay, you know, stay true to God. The solution for us is to always go back to the good news of who God is and what he's done on our behalf in Jesus the Messiah. So let me just end with these words. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Let's pray. Father, would you deepen our faith that we would believe what you say is true of us and about you and about our future, that we can lose everything here and yet gain our soul and gain, gain you, gain the inheritance that you promised for us. Lord, would you give us the courage, would you give us the steadfastness to continue walking with Jesus and to out ourselves as his followers, even when we're afraid it may cost us something. In your son's name we pray. Amen.